<laughs> British Strongman Podcast, episode 26, 27, 25. I, I always Anyway, we're, we're in. And uh, Shane, would you uh, introduce Aaron, please? Because you'll do a better job than me. Yeah, well, this is Mofo Body Mechanic. So we've got him on today to talk about, obviously, he works in does sports injuries, physio, osteo. I don't know what it is. He can explain it better. But he's going to basically talk us through common things he sees, common injuries in strength athletes and just mistakes that people are making, you know, in the gym that are causing these things. So I'll let Aaron kind of explain a little more details to what he does. So do you want to introduce yourself, mate? Thanks, buddy. So, um, yeah, we run a, a specialist. So I've been doing, I've been an osteopath for about 27 years. And over the last probably 10 years, I've started to specialize in strength athletes. So powerlifters, strongmen, bodybuilders, and I think niching down into a particular sport or a particular genre of sport has given me the opportunity to specialize a little bit more. So, you know, you see patterns of injury, you see patterns developing in every sport. And I think it's no different in powerlifting and strongman. Um, and it's those patterns that give you the ability to be able to make, you know, easy changes to program in um, and easy changes to, to recovery. So I think that's the, the upshot of what we've basically done. We're based in Batley, up in uh, near Leeds. So we've run a clinic out of there. Um, and yeah, we've got an online service, which I think I met you on, Shane, didn't I, originally? Yeah, well, um, obviously, it was during lockdown that I got in touch. It was. Um, so it was kind of the only option available. And um, yeah, I was really glad that I made that jump and spoke to you, to honest, because I think you've worked with probably 10 or 15 of my clients since then, haven't you? And um, yeah. yeah, I think the your approach to stuff and the way that you, the, even the, just the, obviously I've not met you in person and had like a face-to-face -face, um, consultation or anything, but just the online service that I got, I was blown away by it. And that's why I obviously recommended uh, you to all my clients. And I think there was pretty much every single client we've worked with um, is kind of coming out the back end now really, aren't they? Yeah, so Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, coming out the back end and some are going into comp, comp prep, aren't they? So, yeah. So, yeah, we, we expedite those, uh, that healing process. And I've not, met, uh, I've not met Josh before. So can you introduce yourself, Josh? Yeah, mate, I'm a, I'm a freak. I don't get injured. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, well, uh, oh, oh, I don't know what to say. I'm, uh, I'm caught a bit off guard. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, caught off guard I, uh, by introducing yourself. Yeah, uh, I'm Josh and... Uh, well, I don't know. Just like a co a co uh, I've coached full time for like the last six years, like strength and conditioning coaching. Um, the last probably four years, probably um, narrowed that down to like more powerlifting, like basically strength sports, strength and conditioning. Like a coach couple of like rugby players, boxers, or whatever. But like a, my real passion now is like condensing everything that I've learned to to uh, really specialise in strongman programming, strongman, strongwoman. Um, and so I think it, it, it's, I don't know about you, Phil, from your perspective, but I think when you start niching down into things, <clears throat> it makes that job much easier, isn't it? It's You see the patterns of you know, movement patterns and start to recognise those kind of movement Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. And, um, and then uh, co competing as an athlete myself, um, within strongman and looking to take that to the highest level I can do. Um, so, so it's good because I can just like, I'm fully immersed in the whole 
kind of I'm coaching or training or and I, and it just just I I have a I have a gym in Lancaster, um, so it's just like non-stop, twenty-four-seven. It's just training. My my daughter comes to the gym. My partner she trains here, and it's just just awesome. And um, you li- you live in that that office by the looks of it. Yeah, this uh, wanky little <laughs> this is the wanky little broom room. So I've got my um, yeah sofa in there and. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. PS4 found a PS4 in that um, that uh, area that that vacated vacated area. Shed. Well, you, you found one. <laughs> found PS4. Honestly, it didn't have a power cable, and um, we were going to fr- throw it away. Um, but I couldn't be asked throwing it away. And then I tried it. it when, I, when I moved back. MST in there, we uh, we built the whole MST because I don't I don't need tools. I'm not like a proper bloke, so I don't own <laughs> a single tool. And I scavenged every wrench, every screwdriver from that random area out there. I found everything. Um, still got that wrench because Harry Harry calls it the wrench that built MST. <laughs> it's funny. My missus says I'm not a real bloke because I've got no tools either. Yeah, I'm a failure. I'm just a failure. Like, We're failure as men because we've got no. Yeah. We've got, got big she boxes. Puts, she puts the shelves up and stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's pretty much the same in our house. Yeah. Well, you are my identical twin that's twenty years older than me, so probably, probably close to thirty years older than you, I think, nearly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, well, how old are you then, mate? I'm forty nine. Oh, yeah. 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 Have you got? Have you got a? Have you got a wig? <laughs> you got a wig? No, no. This is all me. This is all mine. <clears throat> Can I look at my? Look at my. Bond, yeah. <laughs> oh, only 21. <laughs> 29. Uh, right, come on, let's get into some value right, for listeners anyway, right? So yeah, enough intros. So let, let's um let, let's talk about let imagine we're talking to people who can be in strongman pr- predominantly, yeah? Yeah. Um so what are the what are the most co- common injuries you see um and pe- so people I think, oh I'm a strongman. What, yeah. what what do they come to you with? So the, the, the common and garden stuff's muscle strains. You know, I think they, they, the most common thing that we see um, in the majority of people we treat are muscle strains. And they come in a variety of different guises. You know, you've got your grade ones, which are your mild strains, all the way up to your threes, which are your ruptures. So I think that's probably the most common. And then tendon problems. And I think this depends on, to a greater or lesser extent, whether they're competing in a natural federation or an enhanced federation. So it depends whether they're natty or enhanced. Um, and I think there's tendonitis, tendinopathy, however you want to describe that vicariously. That's the next probably biggest common things. And then it's backs and hips, shoulders. Those tend to be the sort of main areas that we come across. So do, do you notice a difference? What, what differences do you notice between, um, like, say, natural and enhanced? Um, the enhanced athletes tend to get a lot more tendon problems because there's a. I spent quite a lot of time trawling through the paucity of research on anabolics and uh, tendon injuries. And it changes the tendon structure. So tendons hypertrophy much slower than muscle. So you find your muscle gets bigger, capable of producing a lot more force. But the collagen that lays down to form the tendon doesn't have the same tensile strength as the original collagen in that tendon. So you've got a big bag of muscle producing huge amounts of force and a tendon that's like you know a piece of cotton. And I think as a result of that progressive overload, as a result of that, that repeated you know, bout effect, you find that tendon starts to, a bit like a rope, it starts to unravel, and then you start to get these tendon problems, which usually then, if they're not dealt with, they're the things that end up as ruptures. You, know, you end up finding your pec tears off or your bicep tendon tears off because 
they've just gone through that. The usual thing, isn't it? It's that like no pain, no gain. I've got a bit of elbow tendonitis, so I'll just keep training. I've got a bit of knee tendonitis, so I'll keep training. And they're the guys that unfortunately I see at the other end of the spectrum who we send it off for scans and uh, surgical interventions. Brilliant. Someone who's enhanced then who's getting these problems cropping up and they're pushing through and whatnot. Yeah, I think someone is his hand. I think it seems to me that the, the natty lifters that we that we work with seem to struggle less with tendons than the enhanced athletes. And I think when I've when I've spent some time trawling through the evidence, it's to do with the way that the the collagen forms in response to the anabolics. So it's not necessarily a fault of the training per se. It's a fault of the the mechanism by which they're building that that strength and that hypertrophy of muscle. Yeah, because that's why Andrew Trainer from the Performance Vibe always shouts on about, um, well, not doesn't shout, he intelligently speaks about <laughs> not taking too high a dose of testosterone. And he's a big advocate of Equipoise or EQ because of its enhanced collagen uh, producing effects as opposed to that. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a good, there's some other stuff, MPP that's got some really good um, sort of collagen protective effects. You know, from a, a, a therapeutic perspective, MPP is used for, you know, it's those kind of third degree, first degree burn situations. So it's very good at um, enhancing collagen reuptake and stuff. So there are some, there are some compounds that you, you know, you could be better off taking. But yeah, I think keeping the kind of those, those core compounds as low as possible because the effect it has on tendons is, is kind of key. So what's the, uh, what's the best fix for this then? Is it, is it movement pattern rotation or like rotation of barbells and stuff like, you know, safety bar and bow bar and stuff? Or is it just a programming thing that you need to drag the progression I think out it, slow or something? Yeah, I think, it, I, think, I think tendons need periods of time. So a tendon recovers much slower than a muscle does. And I think the thing you, the, the, the mistake a lot of athletes make is they try this, they continue this progressive overload approach, which unfortunately there's a ceiling point where your tendon just doesn't have time to catch up. So I think mixing your training sessions so that one session might be strength hypertrophy, one set the other session then might be the, the you know, so you're alternating between strength and hypertrophy in different sessions, because I think that gives the tendon chance to recover. You know, heavy loading all the time is what's going to degrade that tendon. That's what's going to cause those tendon problems in the first place. So, yeah, changing programming. So alternating the kind of loads, um, changing bars around, like you just said, safety bar, back squat, you know, those kind of um, bar changes. Trying to, it, a lot of times with elbows and stuff, trying to opt for more of a neutral grip seems to affect when, when you're in that situation where you've got tendon problems, trying to opt for, you know, bar choices and um, equipment that allows you to still work in a, a kind of a neutralist grip. So you're taking some of the pressure off that. The other thing is, I think biomechanically, you know, a lot of strong men and strong, uh, you know, athletes, strength athletes struggle with mobility. And I think if you can't express your mobility through those joints, then your tendons are being pulled in an awkward position. And I think as a result of that, that's what starts to also cause the, the unraveling of the tendon. Awesome. Yeah. What, what, what kind of, um, for, for like, say, general, like, say, what people call, like, elbow tendonitis or knee tendonitis, what kind of, like, recovery recovery kind of period could you, um, could you aim for, you know, just by, like, say, changing up the programming or resting, not necessarily rehabbing as such, just, like, easing off, backing off. Like, how, how long would you recommend backing up so it would depend on how long they've had it for <clears throat> so you tend to find if we can get it in the acute stage 
if we can offload them, like when he first presents, if we can offload for about three to five days, so we put them onto a deload for about three to five days, yeah. that's usually enough to halt the progress of that tendon problem. Now, what you tend to find is nobody does that, so everybody continues to train. I've been doing that. My fucking elbow, I've still got, I can't even straighten it at the minute. I'm in the... But, it, I think, but that's the problem. I think most people then get to the point where it's that bad that you can't even lift a shopping bag, never mind a bar or a kettle. Yeah. And you're at the point then when you're in the, what they call the degenerative stage. So tendon disrepair, I suppose you call it, tendon injuries. They go through different phases. So you've got the reactive phase, which is where you're in that initial phase of building and you find that your tendon gets hot and squealy. Now, if you catch them then, three to five days of like rest, reduced activity, that would be enough to halt that tendon problem in its tracks. But nobody does that. So what happens is the tendon goes into a disrepair phase where it starts to unravel. And then what you find is it continues to unravel. Now, rest is one of the worst things you can do for tendon problems. Um, and if you took like stuff that we've done with Shane, what we tend to do is just find workarounds. We tend to find ways and means of continuing to train through without the need for rest. Because rest actually, it makes the tendon degenerate even further. The tendon becomes more pliable. So the issue is with the, the degeneration, the tendon, instead of being this like steel-like substance, it starts to become more pliable. So it's able to force transfer less well. And then as you rest it, that pliability increases and then it becomes even, even less able to force transfer. And as a result, then you tend to find that even the lightest of load starts to cause you elbow pain or knee pain or hip pain. So actually reloading it back up is the way to fix it. So it's my symmetrics are going to offer you some pain relief. So, so re reloading it up, but, but at, a, at a lower percentage. Yeah, yeah. So dropping your percentage, you know, your percentage lift down and just gradually pushing that back up again, combining that with some isometric exercise. So, you know, static muscle contraction. So for your elbow, for example, I'd have you doing some isometric squeezes with a tennis ball or a stress ball of some description just to get some tendon loading now isometrics offer an analgesic effect so when you do isometric contractions and this is something we did with one of, De uh, one of shane's clients he'd got chronic patellar tendonitis that every time he axle pressed um, he it triggered his knee pain so we got him doing some wall squats 45 seconds times three before he axle pressed and he's got no knee pain. He's axle pressing absolutely. I think he did 130 the other day. No knee pain, no knee straps. Yeah. So isometrics for your pain relief and then finding a percentage load that you can start from and then gradually rebuilding back up. So if we use an example just for the listeners, if say, let's use the common one, like knee pain on a squat. Yeah. Um, if they... They get to, when they get to 200 kilos, they're a 300 kilo squat, I say, they get to 200 kilos and it's, it's too, too painful. So would the best protocol be to not, not rest from squats and deep knee flexion, but to bring it down to a pain-free or low pain number? Like yeah, so I think with, with the squat particularly, I think the problem, there's two problems with the squat. When you're in deep knee bend, you tend to find that the tendon is loaded and it's also maximally stretched. So when you've got a hot, squealy tendon, it doesn't like maximal load and maximal stretch. It doesn't respond well to those things. So in those situations, you'd probably get them into something like a box squat. We'd reduce the, the depth of the squat down slightly and keep them maybe hips just slightly above parallel. And then you'd then drop your percentage load down to a point where they could start to rebuild that back up from that point. 
Okay. So it's all about just finding something that you can work with to reload it and then eventually reintroduce your full range of motion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if they're, you know, if you're at the stage, we see some really like chronic knee pains where you couldn't even get the empty bar on your back without it starting to cause problems. So in those situations, maybe some blood flow restriction training, some occlusion type training where you uh, like tourniquet the tops of the thighs and you use that because it reduces the amount of load that you need to use. So you find with blood flow restriction, you're probably using 30% of what you'd normally squat. And that will feel like 100% of what you'd normally squat. And you can then build, use that to build yourself back up, build your load tolerance back up. And then once you get to the point where you're lifting a reasonable amount of weight with your blood flow restriction, blood flow restriction straps off or knee wraps off, and then you progress back up from there. Awesome. Right. Before we do a little subject change, can I ask you, I've got some questions. I've been getting them through on my Instagram, so I'm going to fire them across to you. That's all right. Have these got anything to do with these ones we talked about before we started that have got no relevance? Uh, what, what, one has, but one I've just got now. So give me a <laughs> sec. So basically, I don't know what any of this means, by the way. Uh, my video should have gone off, but can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so scapular winging. I've tried to cure, in quotation marks, cure it, but nothing seems to work. It's led to some anterior delt pain, which has stopped me doing pushing movements. No, stop me, stop me pushing the volume of my pressing movements, sorry. Currently, I do a V-lat stretch with a towel. I'm assuming he meant to type. He's spelling weird. Scapular raises, wall slides, and lots of external rotation work. But my scapula is still weak and winging on the right side. Right. So I think the, 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 the thing I would jump on there is the anterior delt pain. So all the time you've got pain, you're going to find that your scapula is not going to be functioning properly. So there's a, all joints have something called the capsular pattern. So these are positions that the joints adopt when they're injured. Now with the shoulder, what you find with this, when the shoulder's hot and squealy, it goes up into elevation, forwards into protraction, and the arm starts to come into adduction. So it's got the arm comes into the side. So this is called the capsular pattern. Now, that's a, it's a protective sort of response, I suppose you'd call it. So the brain's basically trying to splint what it sees as the injured area. It's stopping you trying to, trying to load that area. So the first like, port of call for me when someone's got scapular wing, and I'll talk about that in a second because I think, again, that's another misnomer, um, is deal with the injury first. So address the pain. That then reduces the capsular pattern of the shoulder, this, this protective position of the shoulder. And then what you find is then you can then start to address that using your wall slides and the serratus anterior work that he was talking about. Now, scapular winging, there's a, if it's true winging, that's a nerve problem that comes from the neck, the long thoracic nerve. And that's where your scapula actually comes all the way off the rib cage. So no amount of work onto serratus anterior, which is the muscle that keeps the scapula, the shoulder blade flat onto the rib cage, is going to change that unless you've addressed that nerve problem coming from the neck. I think what most people talk about when they're talking about scapular winging is what we call pseudo winging, where you're slightly protracted, pec minor is really tight through here, and the inferior angle of the scapula starts to come away from the rib cage. So you can't create good stability through the shoulder blade because your shoulder blade's kind of angled at a weird position. That also then changes the activation of the muscles around there. So you find your traps get tight. You can't activate your lats as well. So you can't use your lats to break as you're lowering the bar down. So it just, it then becomes like a syndrome, no problem from there. So I think if it's, 
if it's a painful issue, address the pain first. And I think that would be for me, he's got anterior delt pain. I'd say that's long head of biceps. He's actually got pain in there, not, not his anterior delt. If he's got true scapular winging, which is a nerve problem, he needs to get that addressed by getting someone to look at his neck. And if he's got pseudo winging, he needs to um, essentially address the pain first and then go back into those wall slides and the stuff that builds the strength in serratus anterior. And that should have the, the desired effect. So I think there's a lot of, you know, I hear winging scapula banded around as much as I do weak glutes causing back pain and your pelvis is out. That's another common misconception that people come in and say, the chiropractor's told me pelvis is out. And I think winging of the scapula is a very similar um, bullshit misconception. And I think true winging, like I say, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty pronounced. The whole scapula comes away from the shoulder blade. It's, it's easy to see. It looks like you've got a boob on the back of your, sh of your, back, of your back. It sticks out from the T-shirt right. that much. I've never, I've never even heard the term. Winging scapula, yeah. Maybe it's something that's more synonymous with uh, bodybuilding because obviously it's more, you know, it's more from an aesthetic perspective. It, sh it starts to affect the symmetry. Um, but yeah, I hear a lot of people telling me they've got winging scapulas, and it's not a winging scapula. It's basically an alteration in the activation of the muscles around the scapula because they've got shoulder pain. Right. Well, that was for uh, that's for James. So hopefully that um, hopefully that helped. And then last one I wanted to ask before we move on maybe i was thinking we talk about movement prep or something next but it was for a guy who asked me a question yesterday and i just said to him i'll wait till we come on here and speak to you because i've never heard of it don't have a clue and i was going to research it but then i thought what's the point when you're here so it is for patrick who's basically <laughs> no, no pressure no pressure then it's yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> he has got Poland syndrome, which is where you're missing a pec major. Yeah. And he said that he would love to hit a bodyweight and a half bench. He weighs 80 kilos. So basically he wants to bench 120. But the thing is here, he's already said after that message that he's benched 100 for three at the moment. So he's obviously got some strength there in his, in his chest. But his question was, is there anything that he needs to do differently in his programming? Or is there anything specific that he should do extra or any expectations that he should have with regards to how strong he can get on his, uh, on his bench press? So like you just said, so Poland syndrome, it, I mean, it's variable as what, uh, what they're missing, but the usual um, consequence of Poland syndrome is they're missing pet major. They can get some issues into the shoulder in terms of like the scapula. They can get some issues into the arm, sometimes the radius and the ulna, the forearm bones slightly shorter, and they can get problems with the hands. So it depends on, you know, if it's, if it's just pet major, then yes, there's, a, there's, there's tons of things that you can do. Um, so the first question I think I'd ask him back was, is that the only issue before you then start to think about moving on now for him, I think if he's doing hundred kilos already, you know, 20 kilos doesn't sound like a massive jump to get that, uh, twice body weight lift. And I think for him, it would be making sure that all of those, you know, your opposing muscle groups, the stabilizers around the shoulder, rotator cuff work, scapular work, making sure that all those are foreign as well as the can do so that you've got that that stability through the shoulders, you know, pet major is your prime mover, but the stabilizers play is just as important, big, you know, an important role. So I think plenty of overhead pressing for shoulders, a little bit of isolation work for the rotator cuff. And then obviously some of the, the stuff that you talked about on the last question, the wall slides and the bits and pieces from there to get the scapulars fixed and stabilized onto his back. But yeah, I think, I think a double body weight bench press is easily achievable if he's doing hundred kilos already. 
without too much change needed. So, so really, you can just stick to the general rule of building a big bench, which is yeah. kind of get a big back, you know, Absolutely. strong shoulders, triceps, yeah. work yeah. on the areas that you... I just didn't know if there was any kind of, um, you know, higher, higher risk of injury elsewhere with that missing or, you know, instability and et cetera caused from it. I mean, they've usually got, although the pec major muscle's missing, they've usually got some attachment from the sternum, which is where pec major attaches onto, onto the humerus. So it's not like they have the, the muscles completely missing. There's still some muscular attachments on there. And yes, I suppose there would be the, the potential that because you've got a smaller muscle on one side, that you're overloading that smaller muscle. So the injury risk might well be greater. But I think it's the same principles as you talked about for bench, big back, strong shoulders, tricep work i think those are the things i just concentrate my time on get your accessories in right awesome well hopefully that gives patrick something to work with and uh can get his, uh, 20, i think he gets 20 if he's benched 100 for three as soon as he said that afterwards i was like yeah an extra 20 kilos i think um yeah absolutely can we put a disclaimer out now though when his pec tears off <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, book in with MoFo for a yeah. online consultation yeah. after your pectors. Like. Absolutely. <laughs> book, book in now so I'm ready for you when you do it. <laughs> so uh, can I ask a couple of questions mm. people have messaged me? So um, <clears throat> uh, patella tendinopathy, any advice, like general? Like loads of people have symptoms of this, don't they? Like, yeah, like, so... Yeah, it's a really, it's a really common one. I think you've, it's, I think patella tendonite, tendonopathy. Make it specific to me, actually, right? I, on the, is this your question? Have you asked yourself? Yeah, no, I was going to say, are these like you've written these out yourself? From uh, Luke Davis. Um, but he's, when it made up me, but personally, it's when um, like a dip for push press or jerk. Yeah. yeah. Just that the the anterior knee pain, they just feel, just feel smoked very yeah. easily. Luke's uh, just a bit of a Luke's big, strong, monster guy. Just so you know, he's uh, what's he? What's he? Four ten, four ten deadlift, one sixty log. So he's you know he's a knowledgeable dude, and if he's got dodgy knees, he's probably tried a few bits. So just so you know, you, you, you might have heard no, of him. So uh, no, no, what you're saying, Shane? Is, what you're saying, Shane, is no pressure then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, he's actually Rhiannon Lovelace's boyfriend that's what everyone knows him as good to Rhiannon and lovelace it's uh herbich oh i know him now that's who he is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so patella like we talked about earlier so the thing with patella tendon tendinopathy by the time it's got to the point where it's chronic it's degenerative so your tendon is starting to imagine it's imagine your tendon is like a piece of rope and if you kept rubbing that rope over the edge of a cliff it would start to fray well that cliff is your tibia and the patella um and essentially once you're in the stage where it's degenerative, the stuff that we talked about before, when Shane was talking earlier, that's how I'd approach it. So, some isometric holds. So I'd get him onto, you know, kind of, if he's got access to a leg press, 45 degree leg press, or you've got a 45 degree leg press, because it's asking your question here, Josh, I would get you onto the leg press. Yeah, I, well, do, I don't, I don't. So uh, like the... So wall sits, yeah, wall sits. Get some. And would you would you change the angle of the isometrics, or would the be, or would you try and match what you're going to do? With so I'd start mid range, just because it's the it's the strongest position from a muscular perspective. But yeah, as you progress through those, and you you get to the point where your mid range is pay free, then I'd start to move to inner range and outer range before I then move back into you know your kind of movement base, your squats and, and your stuff from there. 
So I think some isometrics, that would be your pain relief. That's the initial starting loading phase of your, um, of your tendon repair. And I think I'd be using those before you push pressed because that will give you some pain relief whilst you push press. And every time you push press and aggravating it, uh, we'll talk about pain in a bit, Shane, because I think this is an important part of managing injuries. What you start to find is when you do that, your brain starts to associate that movement with producing pain. So almost even if there wasn't an injury there, you almost find that just the very movement, that's, that knee bend starts to associate, you start to associate that with a painful movement. So it starts to change things in your brain, your prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, bits and pieces from there. So wall sits or leg press, depending on what you've got access to. And then like we talked about before, box squat, take the bottom of your squat out. So you're going to squat just above parallel and then gradually find a weight that you can use that's not aggravating and rebuild back up from there or use your occlusion training, your blood flow restriction training, which allows you to do 30% of what you'd normally squat and it feels like it's 100%. It's horrible. Yeah. Excellent. So when you say the leg press, uh, is that for the isometrics? So you yeah, that's for the isometrics. Yeah, you can get, yeah. you know, the isometrics need to be loaded really heavy. So the wall sits okay, but there's only so much, so many plates you can tolerate on your lap. I mean, I think Dean's up to three plates and he sits there comfortably for 45 seconds. Whereas the leg press, you can get a decent amount of weight on there, unrack it, come down to 90 degrees, camp out there for 45 seconds, and then get your spotters to push you back up to the top so you're not having to then you know, concentrically contract against that, that isometric contraction. And then so would you just, go straight into your, after the isometrics, you'd go straight into your push press or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, using that as a, as a pain relieving tool straight into your push press. And then for the, for the rehab side of things, then it's basically you'd use your squats as your rehab tool, box squat it to start with, maybe use some occlusion training if it's really niggly and you've had it for a while so you can reduce the load even further and then gradually reload yourself back up. So how long does this isometric, um, I've never done it, so I'm just trying to like picture in my head, like if to say I was doing it, because I get yeah. pain on yeah, yeah. as well, would, you, would, you like, would I warm up my log or whatever and then I have to do the isometric prior to my set or is it like I do it at the start of the workout and it'll be pain-free for the we've, with, um What we've done with Dean is we put it into the warm-up. So he does some mobility work for us. He's got some hip stuff he does. And then before he starts to lo- warm up on his log, he does his isometrics that pain relief, they reckon it lasts for about 45 minutes. So depending on, I know you powerlifters and strongmen take like nine minute rests between sets, don't you? So you might, need to, you might need to do a set of isometrics before you then go into your next like warm-up set, set. or So either or, I think you could use it either in the warm-up phase, and that would give you some analgesia as you then start to progress through your warm-ups, or prior to each of your each of your lifts you just do a 45 second hold and then and it's almost like then the movement itself the push press almost becomes part of the rehab because you've got less pain you've got you've started to load the tendon the tendon's been loaded the right way and as a result you can find almost the movements you're using as part of your training block become part of the rehabilitation process brilliant does that help josh do you want is that a no, that yeah, that's brilliant. That gives me <clears throat> something to focus on because, like, it, it's something that I'm sure uh, many of the listeners have out there. Uh, I've, I've like, I've just kind of cracked on with it for yeah. like three or four, 
Well, to, to be honest, like all my life, like even when I, when I was playing football and stuff, it was just something that it's not, it's like I feel my knees now and like they just feel tender and yeah. Yeah. to touch and like I can't kneel down and I just accepted it. But I can just get hyped and go and do anything and it's pain free. Well, and, and then it's, but it's just, I know that it's making it work like, I think the other thing I'd say is, again, something that another misconception is that a lot of people tend to rely on the therapist in these situations. So if you've got patella tendonitis, you're going to see your physio, your chiro, your osteo, whatever it might be. And the typical response from most therapists is to loosen you off. So they'll, they'll do some scraping on your tendon. They might stick some needles into it. They might loosen off your quads. And what you're doing there is you're actually making that more pliable tendon even more pliable and less able to handle load. What we have to do to fix this is make the tendon stiffer. And the way to make it stiffer is to load it. So you've just got to find a load that's manageable. Can you, uh, I'm assuming you can, but just for the, just thinking that people know, there's a lot of gyms, <clears throat> strongman gyms and stuff for kind of CrossFit setups where they don't have a lot of machines. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. For the ease of loading, especially if you had to do it like halfway through your log session again, could you do it unilaterally with like a lunge position or? Yeah, you could do it or a unilateral wall set. Absolutely. Yeah. You could do okay. either or. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the purpose of what you're trying to do is just literally isometrically contract your quads, pull yeah. on that tendon. So whether that's a, a unilateral lunge, a, a wall sit in between with not necessarily even loaded. I think if you're doing it between sets, you need that recovery time anyway to go into your next set. So I think a wall sit unloaded or a lunge unloaded unilateral, um, I think would be probably sufficient load anyway to, to induce that, that analgesic effect. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to try that because, uh, yeah, I'm same as Josh. I'm exactly same as Josh. I don't even mention it really in my knees anymore because they've been so bad for so long. I just fucking, just yeah. knees. but <clears throat> like when he was saying he sat there now and he can, they feel tender at mine, mine are as well. And I've not even, uh, I've not even trained any, um, you have the bench today. That's it. I've not done anything uh, in deep flexion. So when I, when I squat, if I was sat here, I'd usually be in like kind of pretty uncomfortable pain in my knees. Not a lot of pain, just like a throbbing. And it'd feel yeah. like if I were to kneel down on my floor, I wouldn't be able to sit there very long because my knee would just feel like a big bruise almost. But, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. What do you think could be could actually be like the root cause of this like tendon overload, like chronically? You know for because it because it's I've, I've like had it when i've done like all right I'm, i know i'm aggravating it doing like push pressing movements now and squatting and deep flexion and stuff yeah but like I, I had it when i was playing football i had it when i was playing tennis i had it when i was playing rugby like it's just something i'm always like did you have managed. slatters did you have slatters as a kid yeah i think so yeah, yeah. like not well i don't know if it was confirmed but like that was a thing that yeah kind of self-diagnosed kind of thing so a lot of lot of people so there's these childhood um they, these things occur because when you're a kid your bones are still fairly flexible so your bones don't ossify they don't harden until you sort of reach puberty so when you're going through puberty and there's all these changes taking place in the structure of the bone and the structure of the tendons you often find you get tendon pulling on the bone now if we're talking about the patella tendon it attaches to the tibial tuberosity, which is a bony lump on the top of your, like the shin. That enlarges, and you tend to find people that have had Osgood slatters struggle with tendon problems in later life. Because what usually happens when you had slatters, what did you do? Um, Rested. That's the usual advice. Well, no, I didn't. 
So usually what happens is people... Just was in pain. Just, just carried on. Yeah, usually what happens is people are told to rest. So kids are told to rest when they've got Schlatter's because it's the, the rest stops the pull on the bone and that stops the pain. Now, we worked uh, in one of my previous jobs. I worked at a tennis performance centre and Schlatter's was terrible. It was really rife amongst the players. And rather than resting, we used to get them to skip a thousand skips a day for like tension shielding purposes. Now they went through a period of time and this is the something I think you need to be aware of when you, when you reload in your patella tendon, Josh is initially it will feel a bit more, it'll feel a bit worse to start with. The pain gets a little bit more, um, yeah, a bit more acute, I suppose. And then what you'll find is that it then starts to settle and it's the same with Schlatter's. So initially they do the thousand skips a day and the gum and are fucking killing me. I hate this. And you keep them going, and eventually you start to find that, that they come through the other side of that. Tendon gets stiffer, bone starts to harden, to ossify, and you tend to find that then starts to reduce the symptoms. I think why, why other people get it, I think it's, it's probably programming. I think there's some tendons need more time to recover than muscle does. And I think when you're trying to fit a number of events into a weekly training cycle, yeah. Everything, you know, everything you're doing as a strongman goes through the legs. You know, there's, all, there's, yeah. there's some degree of push through there. So you're never getting a chance to let those tendons, you know, give them a chance to, to regenerate. And I think that's probably the issue. Yeah, well, that, 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 I completely agree with that, actually. Like, because that's what it is with, like, my elbow, to be honest. Yeah. Like, my yeah. elbow flares up, so then I back off or rotate or change things around or change the order, and I can manage it completely. I wouldn't even say it's an injury. It's just a bit of an inconvenience and niggle or whatever. I wouldn't even waste somebody's time going to get it looked at or whatever. Whereas the knee, the knee thing, it's like everything. It's just like a chronic thing. That's just, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's, so, so that chronic thing is, it's degeneration. And I think the way to fix your degeneration is, is modify your depth. So take out the bottom of your squat or take out deep knee flexion um, and then progressively reload it back up either using the occlusion sort of protocols or just finding a percentage of, of load that allows you to start from that point and work your way back up and using your isometrics just to, I mean, it's the same with every tendon problem. I and mean, I think that protocol for people that are struggling with elbows, shoulders, um, Achilles problems, plantar fasciitis. I, I, I find that the common misconception is Rest is the first misconception. That's what everybody does when they get these injuries. They start resting. That makes the tendon more pliable and softer. And then what they usually find is they'll go and see somebody who then says, yeah, we need to loosen it off. So you've got your plantar fasciitis, you roll around on a ball, you make the plantar fascia even longer. That makes it more painful. You know, get it strong. You know, I think in most situations, building strength, building load tolerance is the way to fix most, most of these sort of tendon issues. Just uh, lean on from that. I've had plantar fasciitis for five years. Used to get so bad that, like, I genuinely just couldn't stand on my face. Just uh, this is it was at its worst when I had the old gym um, before our council kicked me out, and I used to just walk around in socks Brilliant. and I'd just sit down my feet. Sometimes I couldn't stand on my feet, and I used to get them massaged all the time, and I was always on balls and everything. I have not had any pain in my feet for the last six months since I bought these barefoot shoes. Yeah. And it's the best thing I've ever done yeah. because my, my hips, my, I don't get back pump when I yeah. walk. My glutes feel great and loose. Ever since I bought them barefoot shoes, I recommend to everyone, it's the best thing I've ever done. My feet yeah. feel, uh, well, I don't even know 
that you know I don't even think about them anymore. Whereas I used to think about them every day, like Jesus yeah. Christ, we're feeding killer. And I bet I bet Shannon's not come near since you started wearing them either. They were, they were great contraceptive as well. Oh, mate, Shannon loves these feet. Can't get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you on about the feet or the toe shoes? <laughs> now, do you know that's a really so? What no, you've no, they're done not there? Toe shoes. They're uh, they're just they're just like they look just like nanos actually. Are uh, they the Vivos? Uh, yeah, Vivo barefoot. Yeah, Vivo barefoot. Threes. I recommend yeah. them. The class. Yeah. Really we good. can get sponsorship here, Vivos and fucking, bear, you know, the Vibrams. They need to start sponsoring the podcast. So, I, I, I really wanted a pair of them, them toe shoes. Oh, God. Ago because people said to me, <laughs> they said they'll fix your feet, but I refuse to wear fucking toe shoes. So I could have fixed this plantar fasciitis three years ago if they just made a shoe that didn't look fucking like a glove. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what's, the, what's the theory then, Aaron? Right, can, so... Can you explain why... The in my experience, <clears throat> I think the misconception is... And I bet this is Shane will go, yes, yeah. He'll, in fact, he won't. He'll go, no, that's not how I went. So what usually happens, shoes are, shoes are foot coffins. I describe shoes as foot coffins. So essentially, when you're in a shoe and you've got a heel counter on it, whether that's a, an, an Ollie shoe, or you tend to find that the shoe starts to switch off your intrinsic muscles in your feet. Now, if we looked at your foot arch, the arch of your foot on the inside, as, you, as the intrinsic muscles of your feet get weaker, your arch starts to collapse. Now, your plantar fascia, imagine that's my calcaneus where the heel of my hand is. It stretches across the bottom of the foot. So when your foot starts to collapse, it starts to stretch that plantar fascia. Now, if you stretch something constantly, it gets fucking painful. And what most people feel is the attachment point to the plantar fascia on the heel starts to get sore and comfortable. Can't put the feet down first thing in the morning, can't walk, you know, it takes a few steps to warm the feet up before they, they can move again. And what Shane's done is he's hit on something that I don't think many therapists have actually hit on. He's found that building the strength in his feet using his Vivos or his Vibrams has actually strengthened his arch up. He's probably found if he looked, if we took pictures of your foot five years ago, Shane, you'd have big flat hobbit feet. And I bet now you've got pointed ballerina type feet now where you've got lovely arches because what you've done is switch back on the muscles of your feet. And I think this is a really... Uh, another misconception, you know, people rolling around on balls, loosening off this tight plantar fascia, it just pisses it off. Plantar get, fascia gets pissed off. It feels uncomfortable. So going into bare feet, and you have to transition quite carefully. I mean, did you go into anything like as an interim period chain, or did you go straight into barefoot? Sorry, one sec. What were you saying? So did you... Sorry, I just got did, a message. You, I was reading a message of a question that got asked just as you asked me a question. Did you go straight into your barefoot or did you transition into like a halfway shoe beforehand? No, I um, pretty much went straight into... Yeah, just from... What was I wearing before? I used to just wear a variety of different shoes. But the thing is, one thing I, mean, I was saying, I've always well, trained they? my arch and my foot. I, it wasn't like... I wasn't unaware of it being a thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was more that it would be in the gym. I would yeah. do single leg balances. I would do unilateral jumps, unilateral land, bilateral jump, unilateral land. And I was yeah. trying to, I was actively training my feet to try yeah. and spot these issues. Yeah. But nothing really did anything until I just did it every day when I was walking around, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think the, the, so what you usually find, it depends what people, if you've been wearing nanos, nanos are a pretty low profile shoe anyway. Um, but what you find people who are transitioning from a reasonably sort of large heel counter, they probably need a transition. They need to like a halfway point to go straight from a, a normal heel shoe, heel shoe 
into a barefoot shoe, your Achilles would start kicking off. So you develop another problem as, as a result of the... You've got it. Actually, now that you mention it, I probably did accidentally transition because I went from Nike Airs, yeah. Air Maxes with a you know bubbled heel, into, yeah. into wearing a pair of Vans, yeah. a kind of flat sole. So I kind yeah. of probably did accidentally do that. Yeah. Did you wear the, the Nikes because it gave you the cushioning for your heel? Yeah, I actually, there was a pair of Nike um, Zooms, they were called. They've got a yeah. big bubble on the back. And yeah, the reason why I bought them was because it just didn't hurt my feet, basically. Yeah. Um, so, I think they made that, it worse because the bubble, did. I didn't realize the bubble collapsed on the left side. And I, I was walking with like some, like a really exaggerated collapsed arch for about two weeks. And that's when I had a locked up glute. And that's when I realized that, my shoe was fucked. So that's when I started wearing the Vans and that's when I decided to just bite the bullet and get the barefoot shoes. And it was the best thing I, uh, I did. Yeah. So I think transitioning is important, you know, depending on what you've been wearing on your feet beforehand. I think again, the, the other misconception is I get people. So um, a lot of people wear shoes around the house because it feels more comfortable on the heels. Take your shoes off when you're in the house, walk around in your socks, barefoot, get your feet hardened up. So you, what you're doing there is you're building a bit of load tolerance on the plantar fascia and the muscles in the bottom of your feet. Do some simple stuff like toe scrunches, crab walks. So you're trying to drag yourself along with your feet, arch, like, like creating arches on the bottom of the foot and then transition into your, into your barefoot shoes. And like I say, I think if I had, um, if I could change the world, if I was the prime minister, I think I'd have everybody barefoot as much as possible or in, in those kind of barefoot shoes because it 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 changes your biomechanics of the knees the hips the ankles the hip you know the, the back and i think if you're struggling with plantar fasciitis going through that gradual reloading process is, is the best way to do it you're never going to find resolution for people massaging your feet it feels nice um but it, it'll never change what you fit what you're experiencing as far as your as your foot pain is concerned and i see a lot of plantar fasciitis in strong men powerlifters, you know, yoke carries and farmers walks and stuff, I think load those feet. And what I'd be encouraging people to do in that transition would be to almost get into the situation where you like submaximal loads, where you're doing your farmers and your prowler pushes and your yoke carries, but doing them in your barefoot shoes, because that's what you're going to find is going to build that load tolerance up to the point where you can then tolerate it when, you, when you're in competition. Yeah, the the biggest effect I noticed was more up the kinetic chain. Like my feet feel great, but every time I walk the dogs, I got back pump. Like, and sometimes it'd be excruciating. And I'd have to swap arms. I'd hold let the dog pull with the left arm to kind of even it out. Now nothing. The only thing it hasn't solved. That the main reason I did it is I wanted to try and help these knees. Um, I've seen loads of benefits. It hasn't helped my knees, unfortunately, but um, everything else, glute, back, feet. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the knees are a different issue. The knees is, is a, um, a load issue, a load tolerance issue. So it's not biomechanical. So I'm not surprised it hasn't helped that. But yeah, yeah. I think... Yeah, but for me, I've not trained, I'm not trained properly in seven weeks and I've still sat here with fucking knee pain. Yeah, that, which is what the... I do, it's just part of my life. And that's my, that's my point I made earlier. Resting is, it doesn't change it. It's, uh, it's a misconception. Anybody that tells you to rest a tendon injury or tendonitis, tendinopathy, whatever you want to call it, they're talking out their arse. You need loading. You need to gradually reload that tendon back up. That's the only way to fix it. So right. Vivo, Vivo and v Vibram, you can, uh, the check is in the post. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, can we, can we talk about, um, talk, talk briefly about backs? Yeah, uh, of course. People are obviously 
Lo loads of strong, strong, oh, I've got back pump or I've got glass back. Look, like people have messaged me asking um, how to fix a uh, glass back. The bottom of my spine feels like it's going to explode all the time. <laughs> yeah, so back pain's complex. And I think this is where Shane and I have worked together quite a lot with people. Um, with some of his clients that have got back issues, long-standing back issues, not as a result of Shane's program and I hasten to add. Um, and I think identifying a cause is a, is a really difficult thing to do. Usually it's a combination of things. It's hips. They've got, you know, they've got stiff hips. They're the people that you have to put hundred kilos on the bar to get your hips below parallel. It's that kind of that level of tightness. Now the real, um, I suppose the issue is loosening people off too much because obviously you lose power and strength from there. So we need the hips tight to a certain degree but we have to maintain a certain range of movement. So from a back perspective, I tend to find a lot of the people that we've worked with, Shane, um, they've had what we call neural tension. So the nervous system, the nerves that emanate from the back, go down through the glutes, into the hamstrings, down the legs. So the sciatic nerve, for example, these get tight and compressed under load. Now, because they attach into the back, a lot of people feel back pain but it's not coming from a structure that's damaged in the back it's coming from the the irritation to the nerves so what we've done with a lot of shane's clients is we've done some nerve flossing some nerve flossing techniques um you've probably you can google these on uh, youtube sciatic nerve floss and there's various different types of this now if you get the nerve the nerve gets trapped every time you go into a squat the nerves trying to move with your legs and with your hips and it's not moving so it's pulling on the back and that starts to cause issues with back pain and back pumps. And I think some, some flossing in, as part of your warm up is probably one of the easiest things you can do to make your back feel better whilst you're lifting, whilst you go back through, you know, a kind of a, a rehabilitation process. The, so that, that would be my, that'd be point number one. A lot of back pains caused because of nerve tightness. So flossing would be my first sort of protocol. The next thing I think is, so it's things like bracing. I think a lot of people, this is probably less common in, in your powerlifting, and your body, your strongman community, but certainly in the, in the bodybuilding world, they use the, they almost create, like they tilt the pelvis forwards and they create a deep lordosis in the back and they use that extension position to create stability. Now it's artificial stability. You know, if you're bracing, you're trying to bring your rib cage down, you're trying to keep a, a neutral spine, not an arch back. So sometimes it's bracing issues that cause the back pain because they're bracing incorrectly. And when you tilt your pelvis forward, you can't switch your glutes on. It's hard to activate your glutes. So if you're in that position where you're having to sort of create a deep lordosis to create that stability, you've tilted your pelvis forwards, you've switched those glutes off or those glutes are less active, you're less able to contract them and then your back is relatively unsupported. So that would be another potential port of call. Um, and then I think for positioning, like I, I, I think if, you, if you're a very wide toes out squatter, it's very hard to engage your glutes in that position. Obviously we're not talking like sumo, we're still talking like a conventional stance here. But if your feet are out at 10 to two, like you do this, if you stand up, if, the, if they're listening to this, stand up with your feet and turn them out at 10 to 2 and try and squeeze your glutes, it's almost impossible to do. If you turn your feet slightly inwards, and I'm not talking straight, I'm talking maybe 5 to 1, 
it's much easier to activate those glutes. Now your glutes, it's not so much that they cause back pain. What they do is they compress the pelvis at the back. They cause something called a force closure mechanism. So your sacroiliac joints, which are the, the back of the pelvis, which is where a lot of people's back pain emanates from, they rely on the shapes of the bones and the activation of the muscles. Now, when you contract your glutes, when you externally rotate your femurs, you compress those joints together. So you're creating a better, more stable base from which to perform your lift from. So I think there's a number of things. So nerve tension, try flossing. Um, what else do we talk about? Bracing, so incorrect bracing strategies. If they're creating too deep a lumbar lordosis, they're tilting the pelvis forward and using like the bony anatomy to create stability as opposed to the, the muscles around the trunk. And then foot position, try turning your feet inward slightly. You'd need to drop your load down on this again. So just as a, as a, as a point of caution, if you're changing things like foot position, reduce your load back again while you change those things and then progress back up. So you can then fire up your glutes and stabilize the bottom of your back. Brilliant. Right. That was absolutely amazing. I could listen to you all day actually, mate. Um, <laughs> you could listen to you all day just before you go to bed. <laughs> no, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's great listening to fucking someone who's a geek to be honest. Like, and, um, it's, it's just it's i think it's like, more like it's more in depth and it's just it, i i feel like every time i speak to you i learn something and um i can just sit and i, I really enjoy it and equal i think this is the thing i think the thing with you know with learning if you love what you do you never feel like i sit i sit up at night time and missus is snoring in bed next to me and i'll be reading you know scientific journals about various different things and it's like she said to me the other day she said I feel really sorry for you. It's like 12 o'clock and you're still working. And I was like, well done. So I said, I love it. It's, you know, this is like me geeking out. I love what yeah. I do. Amazing, mate. Um, right, so, so on the, on the, uh, on the topic of, uh, backs and, um, deadlift, what about, what, what, what are your, um, views on round back deadlift? So I think once you get up to a certain load, it's impossible to keep your back flat. And I think a bit of upper back rounding is absolutely fine. There's been some research. Did you see Steffi Cohen produce something the other day? I think it was about three, four months ago. So she published something. I think it was on it was an Instagram. She published a, or she reposted a paper um, talking about round back versus flat back lifting. And the common misc... So they're actually rethinking this. So as a, from a, like a therapy perspective, there's a big push now at the moment where we're starting to come away from this sort of flat back position and we're starting to encourage more of a, it's like a normal back position, whatever's comfortable for you sort of position. So the theory is with a flat back, all the force as you're pulling that bar off the floor in that first pull goes down to the L5 S1 region. So right at the bottom of your back. Now where do most disc injuries and most back injuries occur at the L5 S1 level. So it sounds to me like all the force from that flat back has been dissipated down to the bottom of your spine. Now with a rounded back, the theories are that you're dissipating that force across the entire curve as opposed to focusing it on one segment. So your spines, like if we look at the load tolerance of your spine, when people talk about glass backs, you know, your spine is capable of withstanding an axial compression. So if we put a load on top of your head, and squashed you it's like about it's about two tons before you start to get any like decompress like deformity in the spine your spine's incredibly strong 
And I think if we can utilize all of the segments and the discs and the ligaments that sit between there, I think that tends to be, or what the research is starting to suggest is that's safer when you're lifting heavy loads than when you try and keep this flat back position. And if you look at anybody when they get to the point where they're lifting, you know, two times body weight, they've always got a slight rounded back. It's impossible to keep that in that position. So, you know, Ed Cohen, look at his back when he was uh, pulling off the floor. It was like that. And I think, so the, the jury's out. If I'm, if you know, to answer the question, but I, I'm fairly in the camp that a slightly rounded back, not actually encouraging people to round, but allowing them to adopt a, a position that feels comfortable for them, is no more dangerous than trying to force them into a flat back position. And from a biomechanical perspective, it sounds to me like the flat back focuses the force on one segment, whereas the slightly rounded back dissipates the force across the curve. Brilliant. So the, the, just to add to this, the, the more I learn and the more experience that I get, the more, the more I'm actually leaning towards keeping a flatter back for powerlifters and strong men, strong women, is, um, in my opinion, I'm leaning towards that being more dangerous than a yeah. back. Yeah. Like, and and I, I, I've, I've done it myself, like, like myself now, I'm setting up with a more rounded position and I'm finding that it is not only am I, am I stronger and, and better at um, moving the bar off the floor, like in a biomechanically more efficient position to actually get the bar moving. But now, like this position feels so much easier to maintain throughout the lift. Yeah. Any given, any given uh, section of the lift, if you slow-mo it, whatever the percentage I'm lifting, it's a, it's a lot, my, my torso angle's maintained. I'm not getting pulled out of position. Whereas you find that people who, who are aiming for this uh, super flat back, trying to extend the thoracic, like they get over 67%, 60 or 70%, and they get mauled out of this position anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then, it, and, then, and then that momentum into that kind of fishing rod position. And I think that's where the, where, oh, where, absolutely. Where the danger is. Yeah. I think if you can maintain a back, the, the back injuries, in my, my opinion, occur when you change your back position under load. So yeah. if you force yourself into an upright position, then when you get to your, you know, the point where you're starting to have to round because the load's so great, that change in position or that butt wink when you get to the hole in your bottom of your squat, that's the thing that causes the injury. So I think rib cage down is a really good sort of prompt as far as because rib cage down, it doesn't force you into that extended thoracic spine up, you know, chest up sort of position, it actually encourages slight arch. And I think if you can keep the rib cage down, your back's much more neutral. And I think that then encourages to be able to squat in a position that's comfortable for you. I mean, we, it's like, we're all, you know, nobody's, nobody would argue we're all individual. No, nobody would argue that, that, you know, you, I, Shane, all have different morphologies, different biomechanics. Yet we, the, the kind of misconception is we teach people to squat, bench and deadlift as if they're robots, as if they're all the same. And I think what we have to be doing for people is allowing them to express their individual biomechanics in a position that's comfortable for them. We can improve the efficiency of that. You know, that's where the coach comes in. You can improve the efficiency of that movement, which is what it's all about. But I think fundamentally forcing people into positions that just don't feel comfortable because you've got to have a flat back when you squat. It's like back in the day when I was a PT, we were told that you weren't allowed to squat below 90 degrees. I was like, why? 
Why, why do your knees bend that far back then if you're not supposed to squat lower than 90? You know, there's these, these like bullshit myths that perpetuate through the industry. And I think finding a position that's comfortable, whether that's with a slightly rounded back or a slightly more upright torso, I think whatever works for you based on your hip mobility and your ankle mobility and your knee mobility and all the other things that come into play, I think is a much safer way to, to squat, bench, dead, you know, do whatever you're doing. Yeah. Well, I say, I'm sorry for being quiet last 20 minutes, but fucking hell, client is going mad at me. So I'm sorry that I've been quiet. I've not fucking been able to listen. Driving me fucking nuts. So I apologize. What, what's, he, what's he going mad at you for? What's well, I just fucking snapped at him and told him to fuck off and cancelled him because he's just a cheeky little cunt and he's fucked me right off. So I've not been able to listen to anything for the last Did you not say, did you not say we're on the Joe Rogan podcast here, mate? Fucking... Fuck off, fucking he fucking I put about six hours graft into that cunt's first two weeks of training and one typo one and he's fucking messaging me saying um at least spot the mistakes in the program please fucking hell wow so i was like you're a cheeky little <laughs> fucking cunt you can fuck right off. i just pissed me right off so now he's ruined my podcast he's ruined my night and he's fucking lost <laughs> your, your finger was shaking then, Shane. Honestly, <laughs> I'm fucking raped. Because you know when you put, I put loads of effort into that cover yeah. as well. Um, and I give him a discount because he blagged me with his fucking sob story. And then if I'm like, you're a cheeky little cunt, so you can fuck right off. Oh. Should we you'll name him Shane? Uh, you'll have a message from Basile for coaching soon, uh, Josh. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, I think let's keep going on the deadlift because I think it's relevant for everyone. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'll catch up now. I've blocked him now. Sorry. Oh, to, to bring you up to bring you up to speed, Shane, we've just been talking about back position. Um, oh, yeah, I was getting bits of it, fishing rod and stuff. I kind yeah. of I got the general gist. What's what's your opinion? What do you do with your lifters? Yeah, so I think what Josh said about uh, people moving um, during the lift instead of keeping a stable yeah. position is. Yeah kind of where I go. So, so base, basically it just depends on the, the, the individual, if they, um, you know, some people naturally seem to just go in that rounded position. So I would encourage them to find a start position they can maintain throughout instead of forcing a neutral spine and then moving flexed throughout the, you know, halfway up the lift. I think the unfortunate thing, well, the fortunate or unfortunate thing here is you're all, you're both experienced coaches. And I think that people working with you are going to get that kind of advice. But I think out there, you know, that certainly from what I see from other coaches is there's much more like forced them into positions, getting them upright, you know, that overextended spine, because that's, that feels stable. So I think that the take home message, like what you've said, I agree with everything you've said. And I think it's uh, refreshing to hear but I think the take-home message for, you know, the guys listening out there would be find that position, that comfortable position that you can maintain throughout the lift because that's the thing that the change in position under load is what affects your back. That's what fucks your back up. Yeah, sometimes sometimes it presents itself, doesn't it, Josh? Like we see it all the time where people like they're deadlifting and then they're going, they're watching the video back and going, oh, I want to be straight or I want to be here. Or, I want to be there but they're automatically going in this other position and they just don't want to embrace that position. They, um, you know, whether it be social media and stuff and what they've been told. And, um, and my missus got it the other day, actually, she got a message saying, uh, 
just a bit of advice. Your back's rounded when you deadlift. And, uh, <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> she's deadlifting. Uh, she deadlifted 180 for two at uh, 60 kilo body weight. Natural, you know. Wow, fucking So up. she's pretty strong. And yeah, uh, yeah this guy, like, you, your back's very round there. You want to watch that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think some of it comes from therapists. I think there's a lot of misconception in physio and chiropractic and osteopathic. I think there's this, yeah, this belief, you know, that, because they don't, they work with gen pop a lot of the time. They don't work with athletes, and I think they are trying to apply the same principles that they apply to Mrs. Jones, the 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 woman that owns the bakers down the street, who's got a bad back because she's lifted too many pies, to you know athletes that are lifting super physiological loads. And I think they, there's different rules apply when you're doing that sort yeah. of stuff. I think Shannon's a really really good example actually because she's she started off with weightlifting, didn't she? And she's ve- like very good at weightlifting. So she, yeah. she she can she can do, she can pull in this kind of perf like what some people say like imagine like a, a weightlifter doing a doing the first pull or whatever of a yeah. clean. like that's how she started deadlifting didn't she and she was like she could she couldn't deadlift what one fifty but she could clean pull like one forty couldn't she or something like that it was yeah but, she but, I think she I, actually had a higher clean pull than deadlift for a while but, yeah. but I, I think she she's she's a great example of somebody who is who has transitioned into powerlifting and can could do like say a fantastic like a technically superb clean with this extended upper spine or whatnot yeah but that but then go into a deadlift session and adopt this uh like wrap rounded thoracic that's more suited it took, it took ages though because she didn't like she didn't like it as soon as she as soon as she rounded she's like i do not like that and then we started trying to get her to just start a little bit yeah exactly exactly like at first she was she was she was trying to trying to set up in this really extended position and then go ham and fucking got mauled and then got pulled out of position and still made the lift. Whereas now I personally think from watching it, she's doing loads better by setting up slightly more rounded and embracing them. I think what's, what's great about her as well, right? Is I think a bar path is absolutely fantastic. Like if you watch, um, if you watch a video of a pull from the side, right? And this is where in my opinion, loads of people go wrong, right? Yeah. People, people take side videos and they'll be looking at how straight the back is. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Instead of looking where the at bar's the moving. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Fuck me. Yeah. This, is what everybody, <laughs> this is what everybody looks at. They're looking at, oh, well, my back's back straight. Whereas, what are my hips doing? What are, where, yeah, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the moment on? Where's the, where's your fulcrum? Where's your, yeah, that's, I agree. Whereas, um, like and, and and I see so many people who fucking moan about getting sh- like oh my back my back's aching when I deadlift or deadlifts are shit um my back fucking aches when I when I do it and I and I keep a perfect straight back and then I get and send me a video from the side and the fucking the back straight but bars the bar's about, about yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> bars miles out in front of us yeah. and um so can you explain that from a like from your standpoint like. So, the, it, it, so you, essentially, the, the closer you can keep the bar to your body... Less shear forces through the Yeah, there's less shear force through the back. That's exactly it. Um, I would, is, is Shannon... You might know this, Shay. Is, is she lost a bit of flexibility? Is that why she's finding it easier to round when she's lifting? Is he still there? Um, so I wonder whether or not with... Because weightlifting... I, I, I think weight, it's the skill acquisition thing. Right. I, I think she's learned how to do that. Right, because 
in the weightlifters I work with, that they have a high degree of mobility as well as strength because they have to be able to do that. You know, when they're doing snatches and they're up here, yeah, you tend to find that they've they've got like a nice balance between mobility and strength. Whereas I think the powerlifters, I think a lot of them round because they don't have the flexibility, the mobility that they, the, the lifters do. And I wonder whether Shannon's changed no, as a result well, well, of well, no, she hasn't. This is what right. I'm saying. This is what I'm saying is why I think she's a fantastic example is because she's actually shown that it's a skill acquisition. Thing. Right. Okay. She, can go, she could go and yeah. like, say, say clean 90 kilos yeah. and look like a weightlifter and then go and deadlift 180 kilos and look yeah. like, in, like an elite powerlifter, really. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's horses for courses. You know, I think you, you, what you practice is what is what you essentially become. But yeah, I wondered whether it was just the change in mobility because I think it's like I said to you before, the start of the uh, podcast, I think a lot of the, I struggle sometimes when I'm working with, you know, strength athletes because they come in saying, oh, I feel really tight. And there's a part of me that goes, yeah, well, you probably need a bit of loosening off. But then that loosening off almost reduces the power output because that's where you produce your power from. It's that tightness that creates yeah. the, the drive. So yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the limit. That's why I always steer people away from like static stretching and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like people get into training, they're like, oh, well, look, uh, I'm supposed to stretch, aren't I? Because that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Like, what do we do at the end of the session? We we or we, we stretch off, don't we? And like I always tell them. So there's loads of research that static stretching reduces power output for about 20 minutes after you've static stretched. Um, so I always just tell them, right? You realise you've just probably taken 20% off that lift there by doing that static stretch. And that's usually enough to stop them doing those those stupid things. I mean, I think. Mobility is important. You know, one of the things I think that, that I've hopefully tried to change with some of Shane's clients is that we're, we're doing now some more specific mobility work. Now, this isn't about making you flexible. This is about getting joints moving better so they can hit positions better, move, yes. move more efficiently. So I think there's a misconception between what, what we mean by flexibility and what we mean by mobility. And I think yes. it's all about, for me, it's all about mobility. Can you hit position? No. Right, do some mobility so you can get into that position yeah. better, so you can move more efficiently. Well, that, that's it. A couple of the lads that I that I train with, right? They the um, they take the piss out of me because they'll come in and they'll be like stretching about and rolling about, and like I'll just like have a lie down on the sofa for like five ten minutes while they're doing that, and then I'll like kind of get into the thing that I'm doing, like say whatever whatever exercise I'm doing, and then I'll let that dictate yeah kind of mobility perfect like yeah that's absolutely like, spot on oh, yeah right. so you do your, your warm-up sets yeah your warm-up sets drive what you mobilize where you feel like, tight. My, my right knee's coming in a little bit on my squat so then i'll go and do something to address that yeah yeah like literally 30 seconds of something and then get back in and i can smash the position yeah and then i just start loading it up yeah absolutely and i think that's the you know i think Stretching for the sake of stretching is a waste of time. You know, I think that's a complete waste of the 20 minutes you're going to spend rolling around on your foam roller and stuff like that. And I think, like you've just said, do the task, find out where your limitations are to doing that task, mobilize those restrictions, then get back to doing your task and use your task to increase your mobility. And and building on that, I'm actually a massive believer that, like... um, that's why um, te- technique can be so important in terms of um, 
in terms of like basically i'm saying that i i've got more, i've got more mobile and for for the stuff for the sport that i want to do in the last whatever couple of years since i've completely knocked knocked it on the head doing any yeah. stretching or bandage yeah. shit or foam rolling or uh smr for the sake of fucking doing it like it's I mean, transient i mean i think the thing is what so just doing exercise. Because well, I'm I'm a fucking cul- I'm a culprit for this, you know. And I've been trying to, I'm trying my best to get away from it. And I, I do, I have I have got a lot better because sometimes I would spend 30 minutes doing shit. Yeah. Before I even did a squat. So I've not even kind of tested to see what it feels like. I just yeah. had a routine. <clears throat> but also there's some go-tos that I always do. And for me, I've tried not doing it. I've tried doing other things, etc. But I never feel as good when I do like a squat or a deadlift unless I do a couch stretch because yeah. I just find I suffer from really tight quads. Yeah, and I almost feel like um, I get like hip flexor pinching in the bottom of a squat. Yeah, um, and if I do a couch stretch, it removes that feeling and i've never been able to get rid of it without just stretching my quad i do a couch stretch because i can get in like a lunge and yeah. i could just do like yeah. a static quad stretch and also what's the other one i always do um oh like foam rolling my t-spine um for whatever reason i feel like i gain a lot more thoracic extension straight away if i get like a peanut in my t-spine and then when i do an overhead press yeah I feel more stable in a better position and i would agree i think yeah i think what you're doing there is directed mobility so i think doing that there's nothing wrong at all and i'd be encouraging you to continue to do that because i think you know pinching in your hip flexors at the bottom of your squat that's obviously going to affect your ability to be able to choose power so if the couch stretch takes that off perfect and your thoracic mobility well i think people underestimate the importance of how of a well-moving thoracic spine is to shoulder movement so if you're overhead pressing and your thoracics is stiff because you've been sat at your desk or sat in a car all day, the worst thing in the world you can do is go straight into your overhead press, mobilizing your thoracic spine, get that, that opened up, your shoulders move better, you can create better positions, more stable positions. So I think in those two situations, I think you do, I, I would encourage you to carry on, not stop. Right, but I think okay. we were better though. I used to, mate, honestly, I used to be a fucking hound for it. I used to do, um, Gua sha, well, I still do a bit of gua sha. I do rate Okay, it. some scraping. Just in session though with a jade stone, so it wouldn't be yeah. like uh, Graston style. Yeah. It would be like, I would put myself in a static stretch. Yeah. Uh, usually I would do this on my hamstrings because for a long, long, long while, if I did a good stretch on my hamstrings, it relieved a lot of lower back. Basically, I deadlift and I feel like my lower back was glass. Yeah. I'd stretch my hamstrings and uh, used the gua sha tool on them, which I found enabled me to get the effect of two minutes of a stretching in 30 seconds. So in my head, yeah. I was saving time. Yeah. Uh, and then I would deadlift and my lower back would just feel stable, feel normal how, how I wanted it to. But I took that to extremes at some points and I was like, I'd do, I'd do it on my pecs before I did my bench press and I would do it on my lats and I'd do it and hanging from bands and shit. And yeah, I got a bit extreme. I'd sometimes spend genuinely like an hour just hanging around on bands and shit before I trained. So I've cut that down to about 10 45, 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the thing, what you were probably feeling with your hamstring and the deadlift, it was probably neural tension. So the, ham, the hamstring stretch, I would say if you'd have flossed, 
you'd get the same effect. So right, like, okay. the, like we talked about with static stretching. Like what you've got Dean doing, is that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what static stretching, there's, you know, there's tons of, it's been out for about 10 years. There's tons of evidence static stretching reduces power output. And I think when you static stretch, you also take your, the muscle fibers to the kind of, you've stretched your muscle fibers. So you've mechanically disadvantaged them. Whereas if you flossed, you, could, you can use your gua sha while you're flossing if you want, if that makes you feel like psychologically better. Um, yeah. But I think the flossing is what would make your back feel better. It's not so much the stuff you were doing to your hamstring. It was what you were doing to the nervous system underneath your hamstrings. But, and I think the other thing is, I think there's a part of the, that warm-up ritual that I think psychologically you use it to get into that right headspace. And I yeah, think, I, I, yeah, I've said this to myself when I'm fucking baked, that um, basically that I've created something in my brain that is, yeah, like a ritual. Like a I ritual. Do. And if I don't do it, it doesn't feel right. And I'm yeah. like, no, no, I have to, because I've tried it. I'm like, I've been rushing sometimes. I've got under a squat bar. And I'm like, it's not, I need to do this fucking random shit. Like, I don't know why, but I need yep. to. And as soon as I do it, I feel instantly better. And yeah. I'm pretty certain it's placebo, especially the gua sha. I still love that. Now I've got, I've got jade stones flying around the gym everywhere. I love it. <laughs> I just honestly, and I think I the thing is, the thing is placebo. So placebo is a really interesting thing because actually placebo produces physiological effects. We can measure the effect of you if you think something works it does work it has a physiological effect so if that makes you feel better for your lift then i think that's you know that's i think the time that you spend is probably excessive but i think the 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 process the ritual that you go through is a really important part of your training program that's why they always do studies with placebos though don't they because they measure the result versus the placebo yeah But it assumes that, that, that like placebo doesn't know anything. Like I think a lot of what we do as therapists is placebo and people go, oh, uh, it's, it's all in your head. It's like you, what you're basically saying is it, do, it doesn't work. It's just them thinking it works. Well, I think it was Zubieta. There's me getting all geeky now, 2004. He did some studies where he measured the effects of placebo and found that there was hormonal changes, brain changes, neuronal changes. So if you can induce placebo in somebody, you're doing really well. I think that I'd be, I'd, I'd take that as a, slap, a pat on the back. If yeah, there's, there's back studies on ped, ped usage as well, where they've, they've yeah, yeah. Naturals, placebos and enhanced and the placebo always outperforms the, and I know it's hard because genetics and stuff come into play and adherence to diet. But again, even if you give someone the placebo, if it, if the placebo effect is they adhere to the diet and training more, yeah. then <clears> it, it works. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How was your piss, Josh? Yeah, it was all right, mate. It was good. Well, no, it was pretty shit actually because the fucking the lights are the lights are off in the toilet, so I couldn't find. So basically, you just pissed all over the floor then. Well, no, I had to come back in, get my phone, shine a torch, shine a torch on. <laughs> Usually, I need two hands for my cock because it's that big. <laughs> but um, so I was there. Uh, I was a bit stumped, really. But no, I'm sorted now. Hands are a bit wet. So we were just we were just still we were still just chatting about the, the kind of warm-up process and, uh, and Shane's penchant for Gua Sha for, for scraping himself until he's red raw. Yeah, I've, I've just, uh, me and Vasil are patching up now. We're, uh, we're on the mend. We've apologised. <laughs> right, I'm going to edit this bit out, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, by, by the way, guys, uh, for people listening, so Shane's got a... a, a a spot that's opened up for his uh, programming so he's sat <laughs> and um and also as well you 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 can get discount if uh, if you give him a sub story so that's a good thing to know 
<laughs> yeah, can you actually remove this bit and the seal bit? Can you do that? Do us a, do us and a solid. I fuck no. Bit of editing. It's only a bit of graph, right? Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, well, I can send it to you, and you can edit it. I'm not fully. I just whack it on, don't I? I thought it. I thought it, Joe Skull. Um, what I was going to say was, I've just had another question off uh, fucking Pigman Sam, Sam Martin. Uh, you know him, don't you? The nighty guy. He's usually got a big afro. Trains in that bloody building yard on an axle all the time. Yeah. Uh, what's it? So, had to stop squatting for a period of time due to a tricep shoulder pain. I stopped squatting and the pain went away. Okay. Any tips to prevent it? Okay. Well, I'll answer that one. Use a Stop safety squatting. bar. Stop yeah. squatting. Stop squatting. Squatting. <laughs> Use a safety bar. There you go. That's your answer. That's a shit question, mate. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's interesting though, because I think there's a, I certainly see this a lot in powerlifters. They're, they they assume that their elbow pain has been caused because the bench, and actually their elbow pain has been caused because they're squatting, then their shoulder movement is so bad. They've got so little external rotation in the shoulders they can't get under the bar. You know, they have to blow out all that tension by sort of taking the bar in that position. And it's that that causes it. So if he's getting tricep pain, which probably isn't tricep pain, it's probably more like to be his uh, tendons in his forearm. He's probably got a bit of golfer's elbow. Um, he, if he improves his shoulder mobility, so gets his external rotation better, that will take all that load off the triceps or the inside of his elbow. So it's usually shoulder issues under the bar that cause you your elbow pain. Yeah, well, that Sam is a really big overhead presser, to be fair. So I imagine he probably... Um, Just kills his overhead, his triceps with overhead pressing. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure he squats high bar as well. So his position, um, he'd have to be quite unmobile for his position to be um, aggravating him, to be honest. To be honest, my advice to any strong man, because obviously Sam's, Sam's a strong man, Get a safety uh, I just bar think you squat the safety top. bar if you're going to squat. Take the take you out the take shoulder movements out the equation. Yeah, just just squat on a safety bar because I mean, how often does a squat crop up in a comp? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's predominantly an assistance exercise. I think the safety bar's got better carryover to strongman in general, anyway. And it says really small transition period. If a squat did crop up in a comp, you can do six to eight weeks on a straight bar and and then do the comp, and then you're saving all the recovery aspect for your wrists, uh, shoulders, triceps, elbows for your it's, you know, it's that tr trade-off of uh, time as well, isn't it? Like if we, we're going to be throwing in like fucking 20 minutes or, or an extra 20 minutes, two or three times a week developing external rotation, like, yeah, you could argue you're going to be, you should have that anyway. You're going to be more balanced or whatever, but, but really like it could be an opportunity where he's training something that's going to make him better at his sport, really. Yeah, although I'd say that your overhead, when you're working overhead, having that external rotation creates better stability in your shoulders. So I think there's a carryover. It's not just about like comfort while you're squatting. It's actually a carryover into better performance overhead. Like rotation movements in joints, like if you can't rotate, if you've got limited internal external rotation in the hips, you can't express power through those hips properly because you've because of that lack of rotation. It's the same in the shoulder, same kind of mechanism. So he, he, there would be some carryover from spending what, those 20 what, what, minutes. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be more specific to develop that ex external rotation that's specific when, when the oh, yeah, go, yeah, absolutely. go overhead it, it, than yeah, actually, yeah. is it like, yeah, he wants this, but, yeah. but does he actually need yeah, that, that external rotation, that range? Yeah, you're right, yeah. Boom! Boom! 
<laughs> um, right, so look, by the way, we're fucking, we've done loads here. I'm well impressed. We've gone, it's look like getting... It's like a Joe Rogan episode, isn't it? Like three, past my three hours and 30 seconds. There, there was like, a thing that we, you um, mentioned earlier that I wanted to come back to, and I think you wanted to come back to, and, uh, and we can use it to wrap up today. So talk to us about pain. Right, pain. So I think, and, and this, is, this has been driven a little bit by a couple of clients that me and Shane saw. Um, so a couple of Shane's clients. Now, pain's really complex, and, and that would, it would take two or three hours to go through pain science. But fundamentally, pain isn't always about the tissues causing symptoms. There's a whole host of other things that feed into, into pain. So we've had a, I, I see clients who've had you know, like 20-year history of back pain. These are powerlifters and bodybuilders and strong men and strong women. And when you start digging like a little bit deeper past the things that tend to cause those issues... There's, there, there's usually some kind of um, trauma involved. Maybe that's sort of, it might be, they had a pretty, you know, if you look at people like, oh, what's his name now? The 531 guy, Jim Wendler. You know, when his knee went in that squat, he's, the issues he was going to have with pain would be that fact that that was such a traumatic incident, such a traumatic injury, that's changed the brain signaling. So he's going to find that anytime he gets into that position, he starts to get pain, even though he's not necessarily loading structures. And I think the pain, like for not this chronic pain thing, I think I was going to suggest to people that rather than just chasing tissue causing symptoms, they look at other aspects of the life. And those are the things that are probably going to find they'll make a bigger difference. So, you know, sleep quality, diet, nutrition, previous trauma. I've got a lot of clients. Well, I've got a couple of clients at the moment who've got PTSD um, from various, for various reasons and chronic back pain. And they've been everywhere. They've done all the usual, you know, physios, chiropractors, osteopaths. Um, and we've got them doing some cold water immersion and some breathing techniques. And that's had a greater effect on their pain than anything I've done from a hands-on or exercise prescription perspective, because in those situations, the strains in the brain, it's not in the back or their hips or the knees or whatever else it might be. So I think the final point I would, I would like the pain thing, I think if you're struggling with chronic pain, you know, pain that's lasted for more than three months, that's the medical definition of chronic pain. I think look at other aspects of your, you know, your kind of recovery and your management as opportunities to address those, those chronic pain cycles. Because it's not always, at that point, the tissue's healed. You know, if you've had back pain for 20 years, Whatever caused that back pain has got better. Tissue's healing about six months. Yeah, Someone else, right. else is driving it, and that's something else up here that's driving those. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's the, the Chinese I'm... medicine side of it with the yin and yang and um, all that or not. Is it what, sorry? So if you looked into the Chinese medicine side of it with the yin and yang or the feminine and masculine side of... I haven't, no, no. Just something Tom Hibbert spoke to me about years ago that I've always remembered that he teaches with. Well, he doesn't teach it. He just something he, he, he's all into mindset and, you know, resetting stuff to kind of get rid of chronic issues. And yeah, I can't remember which side it is, but like in, in athletes and the, the male that are getting these chronic symptoms that could be stemming from, you know, mental health issues, so to speak. He, he was saying like the feminine side of the body is on like the left side or whatever. So if you've got issues that are that way, like maybe relationship issues or whatever, it could physically manifest itself with 
you know, some chronic knee issue and, um, you know, the right side being more masculine, maybe the way around. Okay. Be like job or, you know, stresses yeah. that way or yeah. whatever. And um, that's something that I don't know too much about it. I just know that Tom's a very, very clever guy. And it's, it's probably come from Poliquin. He used to work quite closely with yeah. Poliquin. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of stems, what you say and what Tom say, it says kind of, to me, it's like the same issue, but with kind of a different viewpoint yeah. at it, if that makes sense. So he's coming from a, a Chinese medicine perspective and I'm coming from a slightly more Western perspective. But I think yeah. a lot of this, there's crossover in everything, isn't there? And, you know, there's, it's like fashion. There's nothing new. It's just reinventions of the same kind of things. And I think it's pain science is, I think the Chinese new stuff, you know, thousands of years ago that we're just probably catching up with. Um, you know, they were doing stuff with acupuncture that we now can, we can test it now using fMRI scanners. We can see the yeah, effect. Yeah, pressure points and stuff. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think, and you know, I think we, we, there's stuff now because science is sophisticated enough to start to explain the why. I think we're now starting to realize that perhaps, you know, thousands of years ago, they knew perhaps a little bit more than we did about, you know, treating things and the, the brain and psychology and stuff. And now we're just catching up because the science starts to explain um, the house, I suppose. I suppose, like e even like looking back to, say, <clears throat> say our parents or whatever. Like, if you if you got like a got like an injury or whatever, and and obviously if the if you've got something like basically like say my dad my dad would just say to me when I was younger if I hurt myself, I'd just say right. Um, just right, don't, walk it off yeah don't, don't be so soft or yeah. don't, don't yeah. be so soft uh, go, go, or you'll be all right and then i'll be like oh shit i'm all right i'm all right like because it's like you're, you're almost like di kind of leading the the neurological kind yeah, of development absolutely yeah and i think in the same way if you've grown up in a household where your mom's had back pain and your dad's got back pain you think there's this familial tendency and there's no correlation. There's no evidence that just because yeah, your, like, your dad's got back pain that you'll have back pain. But they, it seems like people like almost they have this, their psychology starts to develop this like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they, yeah, lo and behold, they get to 20, same age as it was when the dad's back went and they start developing back pain. Yeah, whereas, whereas realistically, it's not a physiological thing. No, it's no. socially acquired, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, think, it's, yeah it's, actually, that's, that's a really good point, actually. That's, yeah. I like that. I've, I've seen that a lot where you, they almost think it's, they've hurt, like got this back problem genetically from yeah. the, the parents, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not. I blame my fatness on genetics. <laughs> it's not my fault it's my genetics no i have I, honestly I, I had my clients when i used to coach face to face they'd be like oh, it just runs in the family you know yeah there are things that run in the family you know there are conditions but back pain isn't one of them we don't really understand back pain yeah, well, oh, oh yeah yeah my, my, my dog's got a bad, bad back so i've i've got it <laughs> so, so i think it's social conditioning i think you you, you almost like you become what you think um, and I think they, the, I think the other thing is with the pain, this is why I try and modify what people are doing. What you also find pain can develop in response to movement patterns. So let's say you injured yourself doing a squat. If you keep squatting while you've got back pain, you start to, your brain starts to associate that movements causing the pain. So yeah. 
in those situations, taking them out of a back squat and putting them into a front squat or taking them out of a back squat and putting them onto a box squat, changing the loading and the, the stimulus in the brain means they can still squat. They don't get back pain because the brain doesn't associate it with the same kind of loading as it would be that caused the problem in the first place. So I think there's there's some simple workarounds for people. You, you've pr- you've probably d- done this yourself without realizing shame, where you've had like a client that's injured himself doing whatever, so the fucking shit's scared, and then you give him a different variation that he knows just the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do call it myself now. Call it a different I, uh, name, and um, and the, they're like, oh yeah, I can do that, and it, and it's like you can you can get them stronger at a harder variation, and then. Yeah, but honestly, when I when I low bar back squat, still, my hamstring feels weird. Like, it, yeah. I know it's in my head. If I high bar back squat, nothing. If I deadlift, nothing. As soon as I low bar back squat, when I pop my hammy, I just have this weird feedback that makes me a bit sketchy on the eccentric and depth. And every yeah. time I pop out of the concentric, out the, sorry, I pop out of the bottom and start hitting the concentric, that worry goes away and suddenly it's a speed squat and I'm like, thank fuck, I survived. Yeah. But yeah. it's almost because it blew on the eccentric. I'm just getting this feedback that's like, "Whoa!" If you get past this point, mate, where it blew, you're all right. You know. And yeah. then when I get past it, my brain lets me just do it. It's really yeah. sketchy every time. And that's the thing. I mean, that was a really nasty injury, wasn't it? And I think psychologically, that probably affected you. For, well, it has affected you for a long time. And I think that's what when I talk about trauma, that's what I'm talking about. If you've pulled something whilst you're lifting, you know, your pecs gone while you're coming out the hole of your bench. It's those things that drive that pain experience. And it's not so much that there's, there's still issues with the tissue. The issue is in the brain. It's that memory that you've imprinted into the brain. Yes. It's an interesting one because I've literally been, I squatted yesterday and I've literally been having this internal conversation with myself about how um, I, I, I might just stay high bar from now on just because I, I don't worry or panic and I can just squat. And it's such a similar movement pattern. But yeah. then I keep telling myself, why the fuck, you know, it's, it's practically the same thing, mate. Like, just put the bar to it. Yeah. But for some reason, it just does it. It's weird. Yeah, there's, there's um, what is it called? Phantom limb syndrome. Where, yeah, yeah. yeah where, Chronic okay. regional pain syndrome, CRPS. It's, it's been reclassified. But it's the same thing. Which I'll kind tell- of proves <clears throat> that, that it's, it's neurological, doesn't it? Because I'll tell you a really funny, a funny, an interesting but funny story. So I worked at um, RF Headley Court for, I was in the forces for six years. And uh, Headley Court's a place where they send all the... I'll tell you what, I, bet, I better laugh, uh, you better make me laugh at this because uh, it's getting late. So Headley Court's the place where they send all the guys who've had amputations and various, you know, head injuries and stuff. And we had a guy down there who'd had his arm amputated so below the elbow and he'd got um he'd got an itch on his finger which wasn't there he hadn't got a finger so he got that phantom limb pain and it was driving him nuts like to the point where he was considering suicide it was that irritating it was there all the time so i looked at um you know we're talking about like the brain and stuff so i looked at the there's an like on the brain you've got the, the prefrontal cortex which is basically where your sensation comes in from and there's a a body map so areas of your body that need more sensation, so your fingers, your lips, your cock, um, they occupy a bigger surface area. Now, the, his face or the face sits next to the hand on this body map. So nerves grow, nerves can regrow. So if you damage a nerve, as long as the blood supply is intact, that nerve can regrow. 
So what I think, so what we, I was treating him and we found that when we scratched his cheek, it relieved the itch in his finger. And I was like, fucking hell, that's, that's weird. And I think when you look at the, the brain map, what had happened is the hand, the brain was searching for information from that finger, but there was nothing coming back because he hadn't got a finger. And the nerves had grown into the part of his brain where his face was occupying. And it had started to feed, get information from there. So it's like, okay, I'm getting some information back. And it had started to create sensation things. So we scratched his, he scratched his face and it relieved the itch on his finger. So I think the nervous system's plastic. And I think this is what people need to understand in these situations. Like Shane said with his injury, if you do something that mimics the same movement close enough that you're getting the same stimulus, but it doesn't trigger those same responses in your brain and you do that often enough, you reprogram, rehardwire your nervous system. It's, um, and I think we have this misconception that once it's there, it's there. You know, you can change movement patterns like you've done with Shannon, you know, that, that situation where you've changed a, a deadlift position. And I think understanding that is how you get yourself out of these chronic pain situations. It's, it's finding a, a novel stimulus that doesn't trigger those responses that you had from the original stimulus and then drilling that to the point where you gain confidence, you reprogram your nervous system, and then you transition back into that movement, which you had reservations about before. I find this uh, really interesting as well, because I've uh, never in my life had any nerve issues until I was in my hand. Yeah. And I would never have really understood what it felt like. But when you describe yourself, that guy having the itch on his finger and stuff, I can completely understand because because I can't feel my little finger still, I, I still do stupid shit all the time. Like, um, because when I think about moving my little finger, I feel like it's moving, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. And you, you know, you rest your phone on your little finger when you like hold it to watch videos or something. The amount of times I've held my phone on my left hand and just dropped it. <laughs> because <laughs> I think to myself, my little finger's underneath my phone and then I just drop it. I'm like, fuck's sake. So it's really strange that, um, and yeah, I feel, I feel stuff in my finger as well and like itches and stuff, but I scratch it and it's numb and it's like a really strange feel. And eventually yeah. it goes, but I'm like, this is really weird. And I would never really have understood it unless I had this. So it's, it's pretty, it's really interesting to me. Enjoy it. Try um, some of the things that you can try doing for stuff like that. So if you've got numbness as a result of those sort of issues, try stimulating it. So if you get yourself uh, like a toothbrush and you basically skin brush with your toothbrush on that oh, numb little finger. That made me feel so sick. <laughs> you'd find overstimulating the, the nervous system may help with the ingrowth of nerves into the area. Because at the moment, I mean, you had, I don't know how much you, you've told people about you, but there was a lot of nerve damage, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, well, they're just fucking crushed, yeah. Yeah. But my, it's, my little, it's only my little finger now. The rest are fine, so I'm just pretty much all right with it, to be honest. So it's I just think that I get these uh, weird feelings in it and... Um, and also, I can't move it with any fine motor skill. It just twitches. Yeah. It's either like crooked or like locked up in my palm. There's yeah. no in between. So I think maybe a little bit of stimulation with something, maybe not a toothbrush then, maybe something a bit softer than that. You know, even if, if I stroke it, it gives me this like, I can't, you know, like fingernails on a chalkboard kind of feeling. Like, yeah, I'll gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Put it's your teeth rats, edge. I touch it. It's fucking rats. But then, I mean, that's what they use with like kids that have got dyspraxia. So they overstimulate them. And that actually okay. calms the nervous system down. They use it as a way of turning the volume down on the nervous system. Yeah, because the only bad thing about getting high at the moment is when I get high, <laughs> the, the numbness in my finger, I feel like, especially when lights are off, I feel like my 
finger is the size of like a Cumberland sausage, my little <laughs> finger, and I can just feel these weird sense. And I, sometimes I've got to turn the light on and check because if I turn the light on and check, it's that good old paranoia. <laughs> yeah, I'm like my finger feels massive. I've got to check, so I'm like. Shannon's like, why have you got that phone torch on? I'm like, fucking my finger. I swear it was down by my toe. <laughs> proper, proper strange. Really. Yeah, it's strange. But yeah, so, so I think, like I say, pain is really complex. And I think if people are struggling with pain, I think the things they've got to think about is that the nervous system remodels in response to stimulus. So these things don't have to be hardwired in. These, can be, these are things that you can change. You just have to be patient and diligent with your practice. Brilliant. Let's uh, wrap Let's it up wrap there. It that was uh, brilliant. Enjoyed that. Dilly dum dum. Dumb. Right. Thank you, guys. Cheers, right. Guys. Perfect.